This is Jesus, and He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Awesome verse, right? Jesus right here gives the ultimate battle plan, the ultimate result. Now, if uh, we were to go back to verse 13, this is the greatest question that anyone could ever have. And it is Jesus who says, Who do people say that the Son of Man, referring to Himself, is? And they, the, the apostles, said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Stop right here. This is the question. What do people say about Jesus? And then, who do you say that I am. Who would most people say, and this is a very general question, that Jesus is? If we just walked up on any street corner in any town to say, who is Jesus? What do you think some answers may be that we would get? He's a good person. Okay. Good. Okay, Savior of the world. All right. Son of God. Son of God. Good teacher. Good teacher. Do you, do you ever notice that when questions are asked about Jesus today, that whenever the answers have to do with anything such as Jesus is Lord, He's Messiah, He's the Son of God, He you notice the definite article there? The Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, which means no one else gets that title. Have you ever noticed even on shows that it could be, you know, a uh, very liberal MSNBC or a Fox News show that uh, it seems like all the commentators get very nervous to say, now are you saying that only Jesus is the way to heaven? Why do you think that that comes off awkward in our culture? If, you, if, we, if we say that this is, whatever this is, this is the only way. Why does that kind of create tension sometimes? Yes, yes. And almost people think that we're trying to say that we're better, right? Or we're smarter, or our opinion is better, and their opinion doesn't even intellectually register. Notice, it's not in this passage what a person thinks, what matters is what actually is. So notice what Peter says in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, I love this, the Son of the living God. Don't you love Peter? Right? I mean, a lot of times we give him a hard time, but when it comes time to say the right things, he says it just as quick as he puts his foot in his mouth. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So right here, Jesus is saying that his church will not be able to be overwhelmed by the gates of hell. Not only that, but hell will not be able to withstand the advance of the church. So the question is, is what is the church. Okay, here's our main idea. The church has been redeemed by God to represent God to the unredeemed world. 
Have you ever thought, why does God leave us here in this world once we get saved? Ever thought about that? Right? Like, if we're going to go home this, to be with the Lord, then when He saves us, why does He keep us here to often suffer a lot? Yeah. Exactly, because much of the world is not safe. So he's left us here to represent him to the world. So the question, what is the church? The Greek word here is ekklesia, which it was used in the Greek world for assembly. All right, And there's two senses of the word church. One would be universal. It's what we see here. Jesus is talking about every believer in every age. And it also has to do with local. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2a says to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, now most of the time when we say church, don't people think of something like this? Right? Kind of a traditional church uh, structure with a steeple and maybe a cross on the top. Um, But for hundreds of years in Europe... When you said church, it didn't refer to kind of like a Protestant-style building. It had to do with a massive edifice like this. Um, And then, around the 1500s, there was this group called the Anabaptists, to baptize again. A group who found the Bible translated, and they began to study it, and they found something that we say all the time in a Baptist church, and it's believer's baptism. In Europe, you were christened, you were quote-unquote baptized when you were a kid. And here's the dirty little secret of the history books, and a lot of them do tell this. The reason why the Anabaptists were drowned in Zurich, which is a beautiful city, I'd love to go there someday, in Switzerland, there were Anabaptists who were drowned an incredible number because they believed in believers' baptism. The Catholic authorities said, okay, you like water? We'll go ahead and baptize you, and when we bring you back up, you'll be dead. During that time, there was a place called Turkey, okay? Turkey is not the small country that it was, that it is today. Turkey was the Ottoman Empire, okay? When we study history, we know for hundreds of years, this was a Muslim empire that was bent on jihad, okay? Think about if we can remember, I should have put the map up here, but Austria, right? Western Europe. There were three times that the Turkish Empire came to the very gates of Vienna, Austria. Okay, That's how far they had pushed into Western Europe. Their plan was to take over all of Western Europe and force people to be Muslims. There was actually a Polish guy named Jan Sobieski who came and saved the Western Europeans. Isn't that interesting, all the Polish jokes? It was the Polish guy with his ragtag army that came and saved the guys in Vienna, Austria. They only had 10,000 soldiers left within Vienna. So imagine if we were a European living back then, we would probably be Roman Catholic. And it seems like year after year, the Turks have outnumbered us. Their cannons were actually better. They would come up to a city, they would bombard it. Then they would channel underneath it to make the walls actually cave in. And if you survived and you didn't convert and they allowed you to live, you would have to pay what's called a jizya, which is an incredibly excessive tax for being a Christian in a Muslim land. So, there is freedom of religion, right? You can convert, or you can die, or you can live and pay an incredible amount just to be a Christian. That was the threat. 
not only were you inducted into the Catholic Church when you were christened as, a, as an infant, but you were also inducted as a citizen of the state. Interesting. So when the Anabaptists said, no, the Bible teaches believers baptism, which it does, which means that you get saved first and then you get baptized. And I don't know how many infants really understand the concepts of salvation. I've never seen an infant come down the aisle or raise their hand and say, you know what, today is my day to trust Jesus. All right. What happened is not only did the Catholic authorities persecute the Anabaptists because they were going against Catholic teaching, but it was also viewed as a way that was destabilizing European civilization because they thought... If we don't, if we don't christen these infants, we're going to have less citizens, and if they're not a member of the state, we're not going to be able to conscript in the army. So all of these interesting factors went into issues of quote unquote the church. Okay, all through the Middle Ages, the church and state were together, right? And it was so bad in some instances that the Pope could threaten the king with excommunication. Excommunication means, I know you know, John. Yeah, no chance for you to ever be saved, to go into purgatory. Brother, you are going to hell, and that's where you're staying forever on fire. You are eternally and forever damned. So the Pope would use that influence to influence kings. So it was all messed up. So that's when... Our founding fathers came over here. They saw what happens when you get church and state together. And they didn't say we're having freedom from religion. They said it's freedom right, of religion. Not that we ban God from government, but that if you want to be a Presbyterian, you can be a Presbyterian. If you want to be a shouting holiness, I don't know if they had those back. I don't, I, I, it'd be hard to see some of the founding fathers doing that or shake a wig or something. But, uh, but you have the freedom to do that. So when we look at history, we have to understand that our understanding of church is very different than what a lot of people lived under. This right here, do y'all like that high quality photograph? Okay, alright. Um, this is a Puritan meeting house. Did you know the Puritans, when they came over, they did not call the buildings that we would call a church building, they didn't call it a church. Does anybody know why they refused to call it a church? What are, for, for our Bible scholars here tonight, what is the church? Exactly, exactly. And a lot of them had been to this, to where you you, you go to this huge building, and it is the building that is holy. That's where you put your gold. That's where everything is elaborate. That's where you go kneel to pray. That's where you go to confession. But that is, quote, in church. For example, how many of us have ever heard somebody say, well, I can't lie, I'm in what? I think that may be a little hypocritical to somebody on the outside. So like, okay, so if you're within the walled sanctuary, you have to be good. But once you step out of, quote, the church, then that means I grab my wallet, right? Because you're no longer in church. So the Puritans rejected that whole concept of coming to a certain place, acting a certain way for a certain period of time. They had very simple meeting houses. Personally, I'm all about simple when it comes to worship. Big gaudy gold decorations and stuff. 
I'm just, just personally, and I think that people, and here's the other argument, they say, well, if we, if we create massive structures, that's glory to God because it's putting, you know, our best into architecture. I say, man, put the money into missions, you know, and we can meet in a, in a barn. So, um, but, uh, but that's just a little history right there. So here is the question that we come to today. What does it mean to be a member of the church or a church? Number one, genuine salvation experience. Imagine if we were in Europe to where every person that was born was a member of the church because they were Christian as a baby. What problems might that produce when we look at the Bible and see that Jesus calls his followers to do different things as opposed to the rest of the world? Like if everybody is a member of the church and they never chose to be a member of the church, what kind of problems would that... I mean, just what do you think? Okay. A lot of the Catholics in the they didn't even read the Bible, they wouldn't read that Bible. And they, and they believed in good works will get you to, to salvation, not, you know, it's by good works, it's by doing good things. So mm-hmm. you do something bad, they do two good things, you're good to go. You're, mm-hmm. you're one up, you know? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got to carry around your checklist. And, right, right. It's a, it's a deception, you think just because you're part of the church that you're saved. Ah. So you're uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Bingo. Bingo. Have you talked to any of your friends, family, co-worker today, and you talk to them about the Lord, and they say, Oh, I, I joined the church. What we as, what we as Baptists and as Evangelicals believe we don't always do the best job of putting this into practice in the local church, but we believe that you have to. This this sounds so. This sounds so like I heard that when I was three in the nursery. But you have to be saved to be a member of the church. We're like, and, but for hundreds of years in Europe, that 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 was a totally uh, foreign concept because. Just us saying you have to be saved to be a part of the church, they would think, well, I was baptized, I was christened, and that removed original sin, and the way that I stay saved is by following what the Roman Catholic Church tells me. And then these preachers begin to preach all over Europe. And there's a group called the Lollards, actually, in the 1100s, who got a copy of the French Bible. It was kind of a little rough translation. They begin to go all over France and preach the gospel, and people begin to be saved. And a long, interesting story. A lot of them were killed by the Roman Catholic authorities. But when the Bible began to be taught, people saw that they didn't need to be chained to a building and to a person called a priest. Do you know that we are, have the priesthood of believers, right? Priesthood of the believer. And the fact that God has allowed me to be the pastor here and to lead and hopefully encourage and equip but you don't need me to talk to the Lord. Isn't that good? So it's a necessity because you have to be a part of the church, have to be saved. Number two, baptism. Okay? Now here's the question for us today. Does the mode of baptism really matter to be a member of the church 
Let's talk about the local church. Here, we do believe that matters, okay? In other words, if, if you become a member of Rocky Mount Baptist Church, you have to be baptized by immersion. And the reason for that is that it's only immersion that carries the picture of the gospel, right? You could be the dullest knife in the drawer, come and see someone baptized and be like, okay, Jesus died, buried, resurrected. I, that, that is the gospel, and you can track with that. Which the argument, the other way, it, it just it's hard to really communicate the gospel when you sprinkle. Now, is this saying that people who have not been biblically baptized are not saved? No. Alright? I don't think that we have to be saved or be baptized to be saved. But what we understand the Bible to teach is that it does teach believers baptisms, the mode does matter. And uh, when I came here, I was told there was an issue several years ago about someone who wanted to join the church here without being biblically baptized. And was the consensus of the leadership that says, no, you must be biblically baptized. And I say, two thumbs up. Okay? Here's an interesting thing that we may get into. This is a can of worms. A genuine biblical worldview. All right? What can Christians disagree upon and still be Christian? Like what, what may be some of the core things that you've got to believe and hold true to be within Christianity? For example, let me give you... What's that? Okay, the virgin birth. All right. I think you've to believe that Christ died for our sins and our salvation on the cross, and that's where we get Okay. Good. Okay. Very good. Hell. Hell. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what what issues can we can we disagree upon? Okay. So 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 the fundamentals. So I don't I don't confuse this because I think this came out two different ways. The fundamentals would be the the authority of Christ, right? Divinity of Christ, the virgin birth. Okay. The Second coming of Christ, because liberals will tell us, well, he, he really didn't, he's not going to come again, he's going to kind of, you know, be there in a spiritual sense, and you're like, what? Okay, the, the physical resurrection of Christ. Old school liberalism says Jesus had a spiritual resurrection, and by the way, if you want to deny anything, just say it was a spiritual whatever, right? Because that way you don't have to, you don't have to have anything in the pot, you just say it happened. And, uh, and then the inerrancy of the Bible, like the authority of the Bible. Got, got to have that. The five fundamentals of the faith. See, it's, it's got to be there. Because here's the thing. If someone says, well, I'm a Christian, but I do not believe that the Bible is true. I, you know, and, and here's, here's the thing. There's different ways that people interpret the Scripture. But I, I, I have questions about someone who says, I'm going to stake my eternal destiny on something that I cannot rationally trust to be true. And I'm like, well, if you can't trust it to be true, then don't trust it. You need to be a skeptic. I mean, maybe I'm dumb. I don't know. So let's, let's go to the, the, the question on the board. What issues can we disagree on but still be within Orthodox, Evangelical, Bible Christianity? What may be some, some peripheral issues? Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
Maybe where the pastor should wear a tie on Sunday morning. Because <laughs> we know that Jesus wore a tie and he had a come over. I mean, we know that that's, that's what happened. But there's a, and here's, here's something I hope will help with this. A lot of the things that Christians get so worked up about are really side issues. I mean, you think, and then we can get down to the nitty gritty of Baptist churches. A lot of the things that have split Baptist churches in the past, where people get all worked up in a business meeting, it's usually not someone standing up and saying, I make a motion that we deny the virgin birth. Right? I mean, it's not stuff like that. It's very, very side um, oriented, oriented issues. So, um, biblical image of the church, there are several of these. Number one, the people of God. Second uh, Thessalonians two thirteen and fourteen says, "But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are the people of God. There's another imagery." Um, um, in the Old Testament, we know that the sign of the Old Testament people of God was circumcision. New Testament is the circumcision of the heart that we call being saved or being born again. So here's a question. Um, according to the Bible, are all persons children of God? Any, anybody remember anything that Jesus said that may cast some light on this? Okay, okay, to them who believe. Alright, good. Um, this is always a, just a heartwarming verse that you probably see on all the coffee mugs at Lifeway. And Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So according to Jesus... Not all people are the children of God. Now, this definitely doesn't make it on the Hallmark movie channel. Okay? And a lot of times when we see these heartwarming movies, it's kind of this warm type of sentimentalism that we're all brothers and sisters. Now, we do have all the same creator. Okay? But not all people are children of God. That comes through belief in Christ, regeneration, being born again. And I think that this is my theological position that the offer is open to all who would believe. All right? I have some people who would disagree with me on that. I think that you've, you've got to put a lot of asterisks by those verses in the Bible that says only if you are elect will you be able to respond in faith. I think that when the Bible says whoever will may come, it means that whoever will may come. And it is those who are the elect. And so I think we've, we've scrounged around in that worm can before, so let's go on to the second metaphor of uh, the body of Christ. We know that um, Christ is the head of the church. There's the interconnectedness of its parts, the necessity of genuine fellowship. Uh, it gives the world a picture of Jesus. What do you think about Christians working together, loving one another, that may give the world a different image of Christianity than what they see portrayed on movies? Like if they see us in John 13 loving each other. Truly. 
working with one another as a body works to perform tasks, how might that alter people's viewpoint of Christianity? Questions, if we get to them at the end of this, are, are going to deal with how we put some of this into practice. But I, I'm firmly convinced, especially in Rocky Mount, Virginia, to where we're, we're pretty much a, a close-knit community, to where everybody knows what happened in everybody else's business meetings. Okay? All right? Like closed deacons meeting, and the next morning, like people, you know, that type. I think one of the greatest ways that we could demonstrate the love of Christ in Franklin County is if and when we irritate each other or there's someone in church who pushes us or we get irritated or get tired, we respond to that in grace and forgiveness to where a lot of people within Southern church culture, that's when you get in a huff and you grab your bags and you go to the next church or begin to spread rumors. I'm telling you, it will blow people's minds if they see within a church people truly loving one another and being patient. Because you know what I've, what I've, I don't know if y'all have encountered this, like, I cannot make everybody happy. And there was an old man in South Georgia, um, if he's still alive, he would be in his mid to late 80s now. He was mayor of a small town there for 30 years. And someone was talking about, you know, the, the, the church. We talked about the changes and whatnot. And, and they said, well, you can't make everybody happy. And he came over and he just kind of nodded his head like this. And he said, well, if you do, you'll be the first one who's ever done it. And I say, you know, you know that's, that's true. And so I love the metaphor of the body working, working together. Um, number three, the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. And um, I wish we could unpack this more, but I would just take this point to encourage all of us. Let's be obedient and open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our conversations. I'm firmly convinced, and this Sunday we'll be able to touch on it some, about the deep depression that so many people hit, but you would never, ever know it. Let's ask for the Lord to give us the spirit of discernment, being led by the Holy Spirit, to be able to encourage and lift up people. Because I've heard from different pastors before, they've had people in their church, men who they have hunted with, been in meetings with, served with, who have gone out in the pasture, sat on the back of the truck, pulled out a gun, and ended their life. I never, 
and I'm going to mention this on, uh, in church, and this may be weird tonight, like if, if any of y'all are ever going through anything, or if you know somebody, please, please, it'll be confidential, please let me know, and I pray that God will let each and every one of us be there for people. Um, we'll just leave, leave that um, until, until Sunday. So the purpose of the church, here's where we're going to wind it up. Uh, number one, and this is the purpose of why we are here is evangelism discipleship, all right? And then notice we've got those two together. Some people say, well, we want to we evangelize people and see people saved. And then once they're saved, it's like, well, we got you on the roll. We had, we had 35 this month or, or 40 this year. And then they never pour into them to teach them how you actually follow Jesus. So these two things are together. And that comes from Matthew 28, Great Commission. Um, and think about it like this. Um, everything that we do in the church, we minister to believers and non-believers, right? I mean, they're one, one of those two categories. If there is never evangelism, then nobody gets saved. Okay? On, on the basic level. And if nobody gets saved, then there's no one to disciple. And if there's no one to disciple, then there's no one to encourage. If there's no one who gets saved, then there's no one to even go visit in the hospital or to be on a hospitality. So everything stems from us plugging in to people who don't know Christ. So I just want to encourage all of us more and more do personal evangelism, build relationships, bring people to lunch. I think Mark Driscoll said the other week, he says, talking about the things of God always goes better over food. And I, I thought about that. I said, you know what? It can be awkward enough if you just ask somebody to come over and to your house or take them out and just, just pour the gospel into them. What I pray that we'll see in these next few years is people coming down the aisle and when they give testimony in front of church, say, my friend so-and-so, they invited me. We've seen some of that. What, what I can't wait to see is when I am maybe set it up before, and they say, I got saved, and my friend, and they point to one of you, led me to Christ at the, at the range or at the shopping mall or wherever we were eating, to where all of us begin to go in the community to lead people to Christ on our own, to where Sunday morning is simply the, uh, what do they call it, the fifth quarter celebration after the, after the football game. Which, y'all going to the football game on Friday? I think there is one. Any of y'all knew about it? I didn't know about it until I talked to Jeff McCarty. So anyway, let's, let's move on. Okay. Um, uh, there's edification, um, discipleship. Uh, Ephesians 4.12, it speaks of the equipping of the saints. <clears throat> um, let's, let's talk about this, this question quickly. Whose job is it to edify, to build up, to encourage the church? It's everybody's? Uh oh. Then that means that we have a responsibility. So, so what does that do to the Sunday morning show up and I observe, right? Yeah. No, you're right. You're exactly right. I was just, I was just rolling with you. No, you're good. You're good. Did that kind of freak you out? My bad. Okay. No, I was, I was just. What's that? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right, and we don't have enough time to unpack this here, but um, we'll be able to do a little bit here in just just a minute. Um, 
So there's, there's evangelism, discipleship, there's edification to rebuild each other up, there's worship, and uh, the believers met on the first day of the week. And then number four, there is social ministry. Uh-oh, your theologically conservative pastor just said social ministry. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember what Jesus did a lot before he preached to people? He healed them. He fed them. We've got a system here set up so that the church is not abused. We have had requests in the past for, uh, I bought tires, and so my request is for the church to pay for my tires. And, and we said, let us pray about it. Uh, no, I don't think that we're able to buy your tires. We help out now with actual physical needs if someone needs something to eat. So we want to be very compassionate. We want to look for ways to meet people's needs. Okay? The church that simply comes and preaches the gospel but never shows it for the world is, is pretty much a joke. And so last, uh, anybody remember we did last November around the time of Thanksgiving? Did we do the children's home in November? Okay, okay, I, I can't remember. That's right, we fed, it was a community outreach meal for people who couldn't probably afford Thanksgiving on their own to come here. And it was, it was good food. Anytime you've got Fred in charge of something like that, it's going to be top-notch and all the rest of the crew. So here's our questions we're going to close on tonight. Uh, what should be the central task of the church? Okay. Great commission, right? Make, make disciples of all the nations. Okay. Here is an introspective question that we will not put up for discussion, but I want you to ask to yourself. How many people have I evangelized, a.k.a. shared the gospel with, this year? Okay. What about evangelism and discipleship makes us nervous? Rejection. Rejection. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You might be around people that don't look like, smell like, think like. Right. Right. One thing that Ray Comfort said, and it's always stuck with me, because a lot of times when the pastor preaches on evangelism, how many people have you run like, oh, I just, I got to repent right now because I haven't been as faithful as I should be in this area. When he says that we experience nervousness and fear when sharing the gospel and bringing things up and bridging that conversation, he says, let compassion overwhelm your fears. And then he asks this question, he says, ask yourself, would it be more tolerable or better for this person to experience the flames of hell or to experience the fire and the awkwardness of conviction right now? That has always stuck with me. I just, and there are different times and different ways to do things, but I just implore you to, to not, to not put it off and wait for that special moment, but just, just share it. So here's the final question. What actions do we need to take? If the purpose of the church is to make disciples, what are some actions that we need to take in order to do that? You know, uh, sorry, I, don't know. I think one of the things is we've got to live, live the life ourselves, you know. We've got to set mm-hmm. an example. That's one thing that kind of turns me up a little bit. And I'm, I'm the worst I can be with that. But 
you got you know you tell people to do something live a certain way but you don't live that way it's, just, mm. it's a real turn off for people I think one of the actions we can take is just really living, living it and breathing it and showing it that's know? good that's good that's good Spending time with the Lord and letting Him fill us and have more of us because you really without the Holy Spirit, there's no way to be faithful to His journey. He's the one who has to be with. Good. Good. I was thinking where churches fall down a lot is um, you need to train. Your own people need to be trained in the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like spoke with the same message all the they know their stuff. Right. Unfortunately. And a lot yeah. of us don't. So before we feel like we can go out there, a lot of people need to be mm. separate themselves or you know, no more of the word. Good. Of course we don't want to use that excuse to never have because I know God will give you the grace. Well you do know he'll bring to remembrance. Right. Right. It's a different different world out there now. Yeah. Just, so much mm-hmm. and I think a safe way to go with that is just go as far as you can. If you come up against a really hard-nosed person with a lot of objections, you know, just say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll try to find out. And um, come and talk to me or one of the church leaders, and we'll try to try to assist there. But um, Right, right, right. Just um, There's a, a quote I read by D.L. Moody, and I think I mentioned this in Sunday school in conversations this week. So if we've had this conversation, here's the second time you heard it again. But D.L. Moody said, we should work like everything depends upon us and pray like everything depends upon God. You share the gospel with as much passion, with as many people as you can. Have as many times to talk to people. Just work, work, work with the gospel. But then when we pray, say, Lord, I could sow all day long, but it is you are the one who gives the water and you're the one who brings the increase, Lord. I cannot do anything apart from you.